Hello, and welcome to Uptown Audio News. This week, the team will be discussing the 2020 election results and how the Bush versus Gore court case relates to the election. Hi, I'm Brandon Mitchell. And I'm Madison Dobrinsky. Today, we will be delving into the 2020 election results, particularly the North Carolina results, and we will be focusing on a few key decisions made in Charlotte. Firstly, let's talk about the presidential election. A few days ago, Joe Biden was called as the president-elect by the Associated Press. However, not all states um, have been counted yet. There are three states, including North Carolina, that are still counting ballots, and the other two states are, I think, Georgia and Alaska. However, with that said, North Carolina does project or see Trump leading. Yeah, he does have a small lead. Well, small relatively. It's 100,000 voters or so. So it does seem like he has North Carolina in the bag, but if the Associated Press doesn't make a call, we're not going to make a call. I do think that the presidential election and the other smaller elections have exemplified just how divided North Carolina is. I mean, it's known that we are a swing state, but I do think that we're special in the sense that we are cut down almost in the middle. There is a significant portion that is just under half that are set in red, And there's a significant portion that is just under half that is set in blue. And there is a very small margin of swing voters that actually determined the elections. And I think within that small margin, a majority of them are either rural citizens or people of color. So in order to win that election, you need to maintain that base, which is relatively easy to do, and convince enough of rural voters and people of color to join your side. Speaking of which, let's talk about the agriculture commissioner. The two candidates for the North Carolina agriculture commissioner tried to do that in different ways. Um, So Steve Troxler was the incumbent and he is a Republican. And then we had Jenna Wadsworth who was running against him and Steve Troxler won. And he's been holding the office since 2005, and he's a lot older than Wadsworth. Strong campaign. But, you know, despite that, she still lost. And it was actually the biggest um, margin in all of the elections that she lost by 6%, which, as we've said, all of the elections were very split down the middle. But that was actually the biggest percentage of all of them. And I think the biggest thing that really accounted for that percentage difference that, that we didn't see everywhere else in the election, um, the percentage difference of like 6 you know, percent of all votes. I think that the biggest factor that determined that large of a percentage difference was that much of agricultural North Carolina and much of agricultural America lean red. And in order to win a position like that, you have to somehow convince people that have been voting red that you're bringing something new to the table. Right. Something new that they want, because if they vote red consistently, like even what you're bringing to the table as a young, you know, as a young woman like she is. And, you know, they might not be she might not even be bringing what they want. Like what that voter wants. Exactly. You have to earn this trust somehow that has been accumulating for years and years and years. And I think overall, the Democratic Party lately, as of the past few elections, have been striving to gain traction in, you know, rural America, that voter base, you know. With their pleas at like low income and things of that nature, low income policy, tax exemptions and things like that, but it's just not hitting because they don't have the same trust. And I think it goes beyond just the agricultural policies. It ties into 
things like traditional values and everything like that, it, it intertwines greatly for, I think, rural America. Yeah. I think agriculture commissioner is a good election to look at to see the, I don't know where North Carolina lies for that reason, since agriculture is such a big part of North Carolina. I don't know. The, um, yeah. So that brings a bigger question of just like, how do you bring this, you know, the undecided voters and how do you bring them in? I feel like this is a difficult position. And not many people seem to be swayed this election either. Many elections, many people who were elected this election were incumbents already. Mm-hmm. Not many people took to a new office. Even though the state leaned largely red per se, Roy Cooper was reelected uh, and he's, you know, a Democratic governor. Um, and I think it's just because he's gained North Carolina's trust, uh, especially throughout the pandemic. Although it was a very controversial reaction, I think overall his reaction to the pandemic you know, with the mandates, the slow opening, I think it was well received. And I think that in such a tumultuous time that North Carolina voters are scared to try something new. Even if it might mean better, they want the security and the comfort of what they've had before. Yeah, I think that's safe to say. I don't know. Roy Cooper, I have seen a lot about his response to the pandemic. And I've seen mostly positive responses, but I've also seen very strong responses in the opposite direction. They're just like, you know, Roy Cooper does not want to be reelected based on his, like, I've seen that. Like, people just think he handled it completely wrong. But these people, you know, the people I've seen say that also are very anti, like, any kind of shutdown, which is just not what was going to happen. I don't know. I feel like he gained a lot of favor there, but also lost a little bit, but he didn't lose enough for it to make a difference in the end of the, the, end of the day. Yeah, and that being said, um, the only other two Democratic wins in North Carolina were the North Carolina Secretary of State and our auditor, um, both positions that are seen as somewhat insignificant to the vast majority of the public. Um, and again, I think they were just reelected. They're both incumbents. And I think they were elected because, again, we are finding security in, and that's nothing new. We all, you know, incumbents have a higher chance of being reelected than any newcomer but i think it is especially true for this election well another election that has not been called yet oh yeah state senator um this is maybe the most interesting election out of everything in north carolina uh just because it's been so close they've both thrown a few punches there's been some twists it's really a fun narrative yeah and i think also a lot of north carolinians are tired because both of their campaigns were very very strong and um, prevalent in North Carolina. So, yeah, uh, Senator Tom Tillis and, you know, candidate Cal Cunningham, that has not been called yet. However, as of now, Senator Tom Tillis is in the lead. Um, and as most people have heard, Cal Cunningham did recently have a little bit of a scandal that some people speculate is the reason for this margin. Yeah, it, I believe that he was polling very well beforehand, but this really tanked his chances. That being said, although he is losing right now after this affair, which greatly tarnished his reputation, it's still by a slim margin. Yeah, it's still super close. And like, it's still, you know, split. Like, so even a scandal barely moved 
the voter base. Yeah, which I think some, I don't know, some people speculate that that's the reason for that very small you know, disparity. But I also read an opinion piece by the Washington Post that was about how, you know, they projected he was going to win anyway, despite the affair, which might not be true. We will see. It's not called. The affair is a very interesting thing because Tom Tillis, like, used that to his advantage. He even put out ads criticizing Cal Cunningham's, like, the way he handled the affair and everything, which is at least smart to try and do from a political standpoint. And this all goes back to the idea that North Carolina is scared to move away from its incumbents. I think Cal Cunningham had a big task to take on Tom Tillis, the incumbent, for this position, and he had a decent shot at it. He was on the right path until this affair broke. And I think that just really decreases steam, so to speak. We've talked about a lot of important results that came out of this year's election, and we could keep talking. But in consideration of time, I do think we should move on to something a little bit more local. Yeah, so I wanted to bring up three bond packages that were approved by Charlotte voters this election. Last week, I walked into the polls and I get through the normal ballots, the you know president, all the senators and stuff like that. I voted. But then I got to these three bonds that I had to approve or deny, and I knew nothing about it. But they all had these alluring names, you know, transportation, affordable housing, neighborhood improvement. They all sound like good things. So I approved them along with seven, over 70% of all Charlotte voters. But afterwards, I started researching them, and I noticed something a bit peculiar. Both the transportation and the neighborhood improvement bond packages have extensive plans on how they will be implemented. Transportation, roads are gonna be fixed, bike lanes are gonna be uh, added new places. They're going to try to decongest traffic in certain densely packed areas. Neighborhood improvement, they are going to be putting money into certain neighborhoods that have been designated as high-end potential growth. And all those seem like good things, you know? I think most of us can agree on that in generic terms. But the affordable housing does not have the same extensive blueprint. And that kind of worries me because, in my opinion, that's one of the most crucial areas that Charlotte needs to work on while it's growing because we are suffering in that aspect. And we've been suffering in that aspect for years, and it's, that issue's only been getting worse. Yeah, we've had a housing crisis for I don't know how long. <laughs> and the plans are there. They're public information. So I encourage you to go on the website, charlottenc.gov, and do a little bit of research on these bonds themselves because I think they're going to play a big impact on Charlotte's growth in the following years. All right, I think that's about all the time we got. I'd like to say thank you for listening again. This is Brandon Mitchell. And this is Madison Dabrinsky. And this has been Uptown Audio News. Welcome to the Uptown Audio News analysis. I would say weekly, but it's kind of whenever we feel like it. I am Jacob Cranfill. I'm Audrey Wallace. And we're going to be diving into some good old-fashioned Supreme Court cases. I know everybody finds those super interesting. I know I do. Uh, but Audrey, you chose this topic. I want to give you the floor and let you uh, tell us a little bit about what this Supreme Court case was. Well, I'm glad that you find this interesting because I know my Instagram followers don't. But, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't think a lot of people our age know about this because we were like in diapers when this happened. But Bush v. Gore is kind of a landmark case when it comes to election law. 
and norms. And people have been talking about this case a lot in particular over the past week because the president of the United States has tried to put a lot of doubt in people's minds about the validity of this election and has just generally made it very clear that he doesn't want to accept the result. Even as of right now, the day we're recording, he has yet to make a very strong statement of concession, which is a little troubling. But um, let's get to the facts of the case, because I feel like uh, the facts do it more justice than I can with my little rambling. So (laughs) the subject of the case, the race in Florida between Al Gore and George W. Bush had come down to less than 0.5% of the vote. It was roughly 0.01% of the vote between them. And just for reference, a lot of states do a recount if you're less than a point or a point away in you know the margin of who's and- winning. To, to put that 0.01% in context, uh, before they did the recount, there was only about 630 votes between the two. Like, it was insanely close for a state that has millions in population. Yeah, and just, I think I should have mentioned this before, but this was the 2000 presidential election. This was the year 2000. Think about what you were doing in the year 2000. Not being I, born. <laughs> I was not cognizant. I was less than a year old. But um, it was a Florida law that a manual recount of all the votes was required due to the count falling into the margin of error. And to give you a little bit more context about why they had to do a recount, it was just a mess altogether. It wasn't just that it was close and they had to do a recount. It was that Florida had decided to institute a new system of voting into their, you know, election this year and it into the year 2000. And they decided that it was a really good idea to get these cards and you would hole punch which candidate you were for. And that was a great idea, except for the fact that no one knew exactly how to use it. No one knew what hole punch meant what, and people were marking their ballots wrong, or, you know, there was just a lot of miscommunication among election officials and poll workers and citizens as to how best to fill out this new hole punch style ballot. And when the manual recount of the ballots in Florida was done, Bush was ahead by 324 votes. Not like 324,000 or, you know, 324 million, 324. That's not a lot. Which prompted lawyers from both campaigns to flood into Florida to question the legitimacy of the recount and voting in Florida. There was a lot of people involved in this, too. And I think it's important to mention now that three of the Supreme Court justices on the court right now actually assisted Bush's legal team. So Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett and John Roberts all supported or in some way helped the litigation for the Bush claims. Uh, However, there's only two members of the Supreme Court that actually deliberated on the case, and that was... Clarence Thomas, he was he's the only one left who 
agreed with the majority, and Stephen Breyer is the only one left who was a part of the dissent. These people keep being very involved in the fate of our country. And <laughs> officials tried to figure out the intent of incomplete ballots, and there was a lot of confusion over a particular design of a ballot in Palm Beach. There was a lot of miscommunication that extended beyond just like a simple recount. And that didn't really help things. But in a 4-3 decision by the Florida Supreme Court, it was ruled that all ballots should be recounted in counties where they fell within the margin of error. So I am very undecided on how I feel about this whole case, to be honest. Um, And this was one of the areas where I really felt like the Bush team had some leverage and that I don't think it's up to the court to discern or, or county officials who was really the people in charge of trying to figure this out. I don't think it's up to them to figure out what a voter means. Like if it's not undeniably, this is what they meant, then I don't think you should be allowed to interpret. Yeah. I think that just the fact that the ballots themselves were so They should be black and white. You should be like, this person bubbled in this. Like, honestly, the amount of times in school, teachers have scared the crap out of me by saying that they were going to like just throw out my Scantron if I didn't fill it out right. Um, You know, like it should be like we've been filling out. We've been filling bubbles in for a very long time and it should have been that simple, but it wasn't. And I think that was probably one of the first times that that happened. And I hope it doesn't happen again because that's a nightmare. And to be fair, looking at a picture of that butterfly ballot, have you seen it? I am not. I'm going to. You should look it up. It's actually like, I don't know how you'd vote for Al Gore on that. Like it does. It's very confusing to me. Maybe there's instructions that went with it. But when you look at it, you're like, huh? That's a nightmare for everyone. For everyone who can't look it up right now. Uh, The butterfly ballot kind of looks like some very complicated board game, and I would lose. So I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I don't think it was the best idea to come out of Florida. So if you haven't seen the butterfly ballot, it is legitimately confusing. And I do believe there is a case there, and we'll try to post a picture of it on the Uptown Audio website. Uh, No guarantees, though. I'm not in control of that. Uh, But... Even so, I think that's a fault that should have been rectified before the election and not during a recount. Yeah. And I think that's honestly, I'm kind of glad that this happened because putting it in the context of the 2020 election, I think we all were very aware that if you don't handle these things months beforehand, the amount of distributing and training you have to do, you can't just change things on a whim. You can't change things very close to an election and you can't be flippant about this stuff. You have to be incredibly clear with your messaging because voting is, everyone thinks it's simple, but it has changed a lot. It's always changing. And if you don't, if you don't have good communication, something like this, it's very easy for it to happen. And I'd also just like to hear that, you know, unfortunately Al Gore he wanted to like do a recount, but those almost never change the outcome. Almost never. You never ask for a recount when you're down. Like, you know, it's just like from a political standpoint and as a political science major, I'm very interested in that. 
And I guess we should also talk about the ruling. So as you mentioned earlier, in a 4-3 decision by the Florida Supreme Court, it was ruled that all ballots should be recounted in counties where they fell within the margin of error. Uh, There was an appeal for this, and it made it to the Supreme Court, which had a hotly contested 5-4 decision. And they decided that Florida's Supreme Court had interpreted in a way that uh, they were basically creating a new election law, and that was not within their power. It is strictly uh, within the jurisdiction of state legislature to create election laws. That being said, it it was very close, and the 5-4 decision... Notably, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she wrote uh, in her introduction, I dissent, which doesn't sound like much, but in justice lawyer speak, it was very much throwing shade since normally you'd start with, I respectfully dissent. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was very, very hotly contested. But weirdly enough, I am kind of leaning towards agreeing with the majority on this one. I I don't know what you're thinking. First of all, now I understand RBG t-shirts everywhere in a way that I didn't before. Um, and, you know, just I think it's important for me to highlight that it was about the federal deadline to have ballots counted. This went on for months, if I'm not mistaken. And think about the last week. It's been a nightmare. I'm a little bit, I've been a little bit stressed. And I think the nation has in general. So think about waiting months for a court case between Biden and Trump. Like, yeah, the circumstances are different because the candidates are different. But I have to kind of agree. I also just don't think, unfortunately, this has a lot to do with every other area of election law and election norms. I think that they all start to run together at this point because then Why is it that one small county in Florida got to decide an entire election? Why is it that we have an electoral college that doesn't treat all votes the same? And I know that's not necessarily the point of what we're talking about, but it's just where my mind goes to. Because no, I don't think that you should be able to have a recount go on for months. But at the same time, I understand why Al Gore wanted to push for this because there is an inherent unfairness to the system. There was just no clear way to fight for it at the time. Yeah, I I totally agree. And it's not so much that I fully disagree with Al Gore's case or the fact that I disagree that there was voter confusion in Palm Springs. I just disagree with the process. I don't think courts should be allowed to make what I would consider a reactive decision in the middle of an election. And I think that the reason I feel that way is because I think that's important for where we are right now. I don't think the court should be able to change election laws because we're in the middle of that process. You can't change the rules of the game in the middle of the system. Yeah, I vehemently agree with that. I I'm very frustrated with a lot of things on the Supreme Court at this point. But, you know, quite frankly, there's a very blatant conflict of interest for Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, and John Roberts. And I know that every Supreme Court justice had law careers before they were judges, but it just seems to me that they have a particularly 
blatant conflict of interest. And then, yeah, I just think that the Supreme Court is going to have to tread lightly. And as kind of a Supreme Court junkie, I've been listening to so many like podcasts and articles about, you know, their role over the next few years. And I think I think that they inherently understand that a court only has as much credibility as it is given by the people. If the people become extremely frustrated with the judiciary, they can't vote them out. And that causes a lot of strain, you know. I think that the Supreme Court knows if they're going to maintain legitimacy and if they want to not, you know, have the court packed or have people reform how we treat the judiciary, they're going to have to tread extremely lightly here. And I don't know if they're going to play it super strategic or not, but I think this is just the start of that. They've been... The fact that they got roped into this election at all is notable. Yeah, I I will say the one optimistic side of the Supreme Court is that they are in. They don't have to fight for our votes. So in the cynical side of that, they don't have to fight for our votes. They can do what they want, really. They're appointed for life. But on the other side, they don't hold the obligation to the party that got them in. That doesn't apply to everyone because Amy Coney Barrett clearly has a bent that's outside of party lines. It's just what she believes in. But I hope that they don't feel obligated to perform for our current president just because he appointed them. I'm actually taking introduction to courts right now. So I don't know. I don't know why every single class I take has to line up so horrifyingly perfectly with the current moment. (laughs) But it does. Um. (laughs) I definitely think so when we came up with this idea, obviously the election had had started, but election night had not even occurred, if I remember correctly. But you want to plug your pluggables, Miss Show Coordinator? Miss. <laughs> um, that's weird. OK, um, well, you know, if you're interested in. Making podcasts. We have a we have a podcast network and we have sports shows and news shows and health and wellness shows and guys who just talk into their mics for 45 minutes. Sorry. So if you like the show, please feel free to follow us on Instagram at Uptown Audio. We have stuff there. Um, please feel free to say how much we're wrong and how much you hate us. Um, but direct it specifically towards uh, Brandon Mitchell. Uh, use his name in the Instagram. Uh, and if you feel like, hey, I like the idea of students creating podcasts, please go to UA, the letters, all lowercase, podcast.com, where we have updates, titles about people. Um, I'm kind of discovering it along the same as you. So stay classy. (laughs) Stay classy. That's not a sign off. What do you mean that's not a sign off? (laughs) (laughs) It's assuming that we all started out classy. Um, Keep digging in the mines. (laughs) Mic drop. That's because we go to UNCC. Uh, (laughs) And we're the 49ers. (laughs) I don't see normally when it's like a news show, we can be like, I'm Audrey Wallace. 
I'm still Jacob Cranfield from the intro. Yeah, and this is Uptown <laughs> Audio News, except for that it's not because it's an analysis episode. So I guess we should just say this is Uptown. This is analysis of the world. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we're just gonna say thank you so much for listening, and see you in the next one. See Goodbye. ya. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Kristen Crumpler, Uptown Audio News.